Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We run courses and mentorship designed to help clinicians apply a person-centered approach to their practice. We've got online and in-person courses all up on our website, so check it out at tkex.org and join our Facebook discussion group for more. So today I am joined by an underrated meme king, if I may say so myself, Louis Seville. He's a Brisbane-based physiotherapist with a special interest in CrossFit and SNC. And we're going to dive into his journey and experiences, some of the fallacies in our physio rehab world, and the challenges to applying an evidence-based approach and some helpful advice for clinicians in private practice. So Lou, mate, second time around, we had you on with Steve, but this time I've kicked Steve out just to make it about you. So it's a pleasure having you and thank you for making the time. Mate, uh, Steve's, Steve's over the hill. He's had his time. He's come and gone. I'll, I'll pass uh, this one on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. I'm sure he'll listen at some point. So, you know, I must have done something right to be invited back. So that's, that's all shaded, Steve. But no, thank you for having me on. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be on on my own. Mate, the famous question, what's, what's your story? Yeah, so I'm a, uh, as you put it, a Brisbane-based physio. Um, I grew up in, in Toowoomba in Queensland. Um, which, I mean, to someone like yourself who lives in Sydney, that probably sounds like absolute woof woof, like a two-horse town. But, you know, I'll, I'll have you know, it's the, the largest inland city in Australia. It's about an hour and 40 minutes from, uh, from Brisbane, famous for the Carnival of Flowers. Um, so grew, grew, grew up up there and uh, I, I really enjoyed playing, playing basketball. I was a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a fiend and probably um, specialised a little bit too early in that. Uh, played year-round for many years. Um, relocated to Brisbane in, in 2012 to start my studies in, in physio at, at UQ and graduated at the end of 2015. Um, and since that time, I've worked in, in private practice in, in various settings throughout throughout Brisbane. Um, I've I started my own business out of the CrossFit gym I was attending um, in 2018. And it was, it was really just born out of one of the owners had been pressuring me to do it. Um, I was very reluctant to like take the risk of going out on my own at such a young point in my career and wanting to have exposure to senior clinicians. But at the same time, I kind of reached a point where I thought, well, look, maybe I just do this on the side and, and see where it goes. And, you know, I sort of was able to set myself up in a situation where I had pretty low overheads and it was more contingent on the number of people I was seeing as opposed to fixed rent. Um, and that's sort of grown very organically um, now to the point where I am hundred percent self-employed. So I practice out of rebuild health and fitness, which is, in Brisbane's beautiful Bayside in, in Wynnum West. So since uh, since November, I've been 100% out on my own and uh, all, so far, so good. That's great. There's uh, quite a few clinicians that I speak to and they've reached out asking for some advice and there is that risk of going out on your own and starting your own business. Um, and so you, initially you, you wanted to get a bit of uh, guidance and, and help and support in that private practice role and then you, you made a like a small step towards owning your own practice it wasn't like a giant leap that's a common theme that comes up yeah yeah absolutely and and look i i will fully acknowledge that i've probably been about as privileged as anyone in my ability to get my business going like i've had a, a lot of assistance from like the boys here at rebuild who you know have put me in a situation where they they refer me plenty of clients like i have quite a good relationship with with those guys and i i think too one of the reasons that I've been able to end up at this point where fully self-employed is I've just been in the same place for long enough to organically grow sources of referrals and sort of help enough people that word of mouth kind of keeps me ticking over fairly well. Um, 
but yeah, it is it is very daunting uh, the the idea of going out on yourself to begin with because it does take it is an enormous risk and setting up a practice from scratch is is expensive. So I don't envy anyone sort of staring down the barrel of that. Yeah, and any um, so acknowledging the referral sources are important, um, and there is a bit of um, almost luck and some kind of variables that are outside of your control to set up the environment and to facilitate that move from say full-time clinical practice into running your own business full-time what what advice would you provide for some of the listeners who are thinking about that but perhaps on the fence because of that that risk oh mate it's great it's a great question i I think as i said i would i would put my success down to the relationships that i've built um I, i i dare say that that has been absolutely key in that and and I suppose too, there is an element of luck in that I, I was able to attach myself to a, a brand at, at this gym where that these guys have sort of gone from strength to strength and, and really grown over the years. So, um, but but I guess too, the other, the other side of the coin is not just building those relationships where you do sort of generate those referrals and word of mouth, but I, I guess looking for context to practice in where you can maybe minimize your overheads and save on some some startup costs and I am familiar with a few other clinicians here in Brisbane who've organised similar arrangements to myself where you occupy an existing gym space with with like a room above the gym floor or something along those lines so you can keep your costs a bit lower that way. Um, I guess, again, you have the risk of, well, if the gym goes under, you're out on your ass. Um, but I, I dare say if you're looking to start it as a side hustle, it's, it's probably the best and most sustainable way to do it. Um, I mean, take it with a massive grain of salt, mate. I wouldn't... I wouldn't <laughs> consider myself a massive expert on business, but I, I think that those are probably the reasons that I've been able to succeed. Yeah, that's some really useful points. And we've had Francis Brown, who I'm sure you know as well, um, who also has a similar arrangement. So it's nice to hear from lived experiences of, of people who have made that transition and hear what it's like to um, to handle the challenges and the, and the risks involved in owning your own business. Um, mate, an open-ended question about, your, your journey thus far and, and um, I'm interested in hearing like the clinical practice journey uh, you know identity and ego journey who are you what are you what is life existential crisis journey um, what, what was that kind of um, like and take it wherever you'd, you'd like say from we'll start from post university new grad years yeah yeah okay so I mean you're gonna have to title this one um, all the ways in which Lewis has been a dickhead um i think I, I think like anyone and and you know i know you've been very candid about this like i mean i've made i've made plenty of mistakes along the way but i think i've definitely sort of grown from that and reflected on that so um coming up through uni um i sort of found physio twitter and physio social media fairly early and i know that i know a lot of people i know have come to that later on um but for me that was that was a really big deal and that it helped expose me to some ideas and some concepts that I didn't necessarily get at university. Um, I sort of followed, started following the likes of Adam Meekins and Greg Lehman and, and, and those guys and listening to, listening to podcasts. And yeah, it definitely taught me a lot and probably gave me a little bit of a, a step up in terms of um, becoming a bit more progressive, coming straight out of, of university. Um, unfortunately, I think what, what happened was I really drank the pain science kool-aid in a in a sense and um i i certainly i think as a grad was guilty of the whole idea of, of pain explaining right like just just really getting into the nitty-gritty of of what pain is and how you know it's it's really not that bad and not that dangerous and all these things and and i think that 
particularly when dealing with people with persistent pain, I thought that, you know, just that education and ad- adhering to an exercise plan would be enough to manage persistent pain. And, you know, I think it took a few a few failures on that front to uh, cause me to reflect and go, no, there's so much more to this. And, you know, I think your podcast is a great resource on how to navigate that whole side of things a hell of a lot better. And, you know, I probably came to that in maybe 2018 and that's been, that's been a, a key cog in my journey as, as well. Um, I, I think because of my past experience as a, as a basketball player and, and having a bit of an interest in S&C and doing that on the side and that, that sort of led to me having a, a bias towards resistance training. And I, and I think I'm, I've probably been guilty over time of letting that tendency like drive my treatment recommendations um, over like actually considering a person's goals, contexts, preferences and beliefs. Um, so I've definitely been guilty of, of that at times and had to reevaluate that. Um, I, I think too, part of the, the journey is as somebody who is like quote unquote woke as a as a physio, you know, that that word that gets thrown around irresponsibly. Um, I, I think that I've had a tendency to get disproportionately worked up uh, by what I've viewed as poor practice by by colleagues in my in my area. Um, and I've I've gone through waves of having this overwhelming sense of frustration uh, with the state of musculoskeletal healthcare and lose, losing a bit of faith in my my profession along along the way. Um, and, and I think that in some way I was assigning like almost like this sense of morality to it, making it about like, like why aren't you upskilling? Why aren't you putting in the effort to be more evidence-based and learn more about these things and keep up to date? And I, I, I think it's, it's not that simple. It's not that black and white. It's not as simple as saying, well, if you don't do that, you're a, you're a bad clinician, you're a bad person. Um, I think um, late last year when you had Anthony Lowe on, he put it really well about, we really need to assume positive intent from the people that we disagree with. And and I think that, that, that really, I think clicked for me in my head at the time. Like I, I don't think it's fair to say that just because somebody is a bit outdated or they're, they're perhaps peddling a bit of an out, you know, an outdated, nocebic narrative that they, they mean harm by that and nor should they be judged in that way. It's, it's just, it, it's so incredibly complex. And, and we talk about, you know, we treat, people not painful body parts well clinicians are people too and and the majority are trying their best and you know within these these flawed systems and frameworks that we're all we're all a part of and there are so many barriers to them keeping up to date so i think that realizing that and understanding that means that it's just really taking the heat of and or heat off i should say um and, and i think to letting go of thinking it's my responsibility to try and change people's minds on these things as well. Um, and, and just focusing on how I can better serve the people that I interact with. I think that's really helped me mentally. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on that as well. Yeah, definitely can relate and resonate with the, the fury, the disbelief, the uh, frustration, disappointment with all allied health, like MSK, pain professionals, EPs, definitely included in this boat. I think it's a uh, it's uh, very difficult to to handle um, when you're in front of a client who's seeing you for persisting pain, and then you ask them what have other clinicians told you, or what's what's your understanding, and they either don't have an understanding, which is probably beyond my understanding, of they just weren't really given that time to reflect and to um, to really under like 
understand the jargon from previous treatments. And this goes along the spectrum of GPs, specialists and physio EP um, and like, or they come up with like all these um, unhelpful beliefs that I literally read and make content about. So that is, um, it's disheartening. And I think you've made some really great um, points. I think the first point is to acknowledge that that's our own frustration and having the uh, understanding and awareness of when that shows up for us because we're also human and shows that we care and we want to progress the field per se. Um, and then acknowledging what is within our control and maybe building our own communities and our own reputation and brand, which I can uh, definitely see you are doing um, from my biased online bubble at least. So yeah, hopefully that, that helps for the, the listeners who also share some frustration maybe with what they hear other clinicians do and say. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think too, that for me, and, and this ties in with the whole thing about going out on your own, right, is it's, it would be very easy to become, I guess, you know, to, to quote, quote the Simpsons, um, quite isolated and weird. <laughs> um, so I think that that's where social media has a lot of a lot of value as much as it can be an absolute cesspool and hellscape in a bunch of ways um i i found that just by making my my page in late 2020 um over time i've connected with a few people locally here in brisbane who i may not have had any exposure to otherwise who i would now consider friends and mentors right and and i think that that certainly softens the uh the loss of having a, a colleague in your immediate vicinity who can bounce things off of, right? There are there are ways to go about it where you can still, I guess, fulfill that need. Um, and it, it may not completely uh, replace face-to-face interaction with a colleague, but I think it's a good way to, to maybe smooth that out. And you, you get opportunities as a result of that to, to network face-to-face and to learn from people. I think that's a, another thing that's perhaps underrated or uh, undervalued of having people to bounce ideas off and we, we need that community, um, otherwise it can be quite isolating and, and we might feel like they were the only person who is um, practicing in a different way, with almost a different approach. Um, how have you come to uh, where you're at with reconciling like your role, your like your own brand within the wider context of say the physiotherapist and what maybe some people might expect coming in to to see you for your for their care. Yeah, that's 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 a really good question, right? I, I think um, the part that I've struggled with most is the whole uh, perception that as, as physios we are we are fixers, right? Like we we're operating with this person's body almost as though it's a machine, and we're getting in there and doing something to correct a. And, and an imbalance or a mobility restriction or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, so I, I suppose I obviously subscribe a bit more, as I'm sure you do, to the idea of being more of a more of a guide who who works with a person on on making sense of their situation and understanding their pain a bit better and what what they can do to to get over it. And then I, I guess to um, and this probably circles back to again mistakes I've made. I think I think as a grad. I was disproportionately worried about over-servicing and, and this whole, I think I let the the concept of high value care really get to me a bit where it was like, well, surely providing less care that's of high quality is, is better value, right? But I think, again, that really fails to meet the person where they're at and, and what their individual needs and preferences are. And, and some people do want 
more guidance. So I think like a key a key thing that I'm trying to do is actually sort of we'll ask people, well, based on everything that we've been through today and, and what you now understand about your condition, like how much support are you looking for with this? And try to ask that as a question a bit more, right? Because it, w- when you do that, you, you, you will not... I guess, underservice the people who probably do want or require or see value in some additional follow-up, right? So um, I, I suppose that's sort of where I see my my role now. It's more in that 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 guide role who's who's able to, I guess, help people make sense of their problem and sort of help them come up with a plan to manage things to the best of their ability on their own, but also getting feedback about how much input they would like from me as well um, and then shifting away from the narrative of I'm here to fix your problem. Yep, the um, the shared decision making and jumping from the uh, advisor, coach, supervisor, and um, away from the person that has all the answers, even though that's generally what we're taught and how we are assessed from uh, you know university and the the examinations, the tests that we do. There is, for the most part, at least with clinical reasoning, a, a answer or like a more of a black or white. Uh, response and um, that's how we're graded so it makes sense that people maybe go out into private practice and they see the nuances and they try and find that simple solution or that um, uh, that they can reduce the complexity into ways that make sense for them so I think um, having some questions such as involving and asking the person how much guidance based on the assessment based on the consult would they like I think that's a great starting point for people who are quite lost and acknowledging I also feel quite lost with some patients with their stories and their experiences. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I think sometimes like even without asking that question, just by actually listening to them and hearing them out and giving them the opportunity to share all their thoughts and feelings around what's going on, you, you can have a pretty good sense of that even prior to asking the question, right? Like I think that that's, that's really important. Um, I think probably the thing that I still grapple with the most is like when when is, because as you say, like, yes, we are, we are ultimately more knowledgeable than the people we're seeing. And, and while, yes, they are experts in their own pain to a degree, we still have, um, I guess, value to add. And, and while we don't want to be too paternalistic, it's just knowing when maybe we should be more. Um, and, and I suppose where I where I've landed on it a bit is like when the person is clearly showing that through their beliefs and behavior that they probably don't really know what's good for them and may actually be actively causing some harm. Um, and the example I'm thinking of is like the the classic endurance coper. And I, I do see this from time to time in the, in the context of, of CrossFit training. It's that person who is, is just very consistently overdoing it when completely left to their own devices and decision-making. And, and I think that in that context, being a bit more paternalistic and saying like, look, you really need to dial it back is a totally reasonable thing and an ethical thing to do. Um, but it is, it's a fine line. Hey, it's a fine line. And I'm, I'm under no illusions that I've worked it all out. I'm still processing that and knowing like, when is it appropriate? When is it not? And adapting to that person and how they respond to how you respond. It's that kind of relationship and through that relationship, you can, um, those decisions emerge so it's, it's so difficult to explain without having a, a deep dive into cases or having a, a person and seeing an interaction because I mean even that question that we mentioned of how much support how much guidance would you like if that said in a tone of voice that might not resonate well might not land well with the the client who's you know they're they're literally in pain they're, they're fucking frustrated they're fed up they want an answer 
Um, and it can land in a completely different way to another person who maybe has a very similar diagnosis, but a different, um, different set of priors, different understanding, different expectations, et cetera. Yeah, a hundred percent. And perhaps like to add some color to that, maybe throughout the, uh, the, the consultation, you're getting the sense that this person is really looking to you for advice and direction. You may not even ask that question at all, right? Like may, maybe it's best that you just holster that one. Uh, whereas if they're more or less saying, look, I'm, I'm really just interested in some, some exercises and some strategies that I can use to get on top of this myself, then, then framing it that way to them, I think is going to be really appreciated. Right. They'll be like, oh, cool. This guy's not looking to lock me into some sort of BS treatment plan of two sessions a week for six weeks, irrespective of whether or not I need it. Um, and, and I think that that's, that builds goodwill and it builds solid word of mouth. And I think that's what feeds us in the long run, doesn't it? That's it. Active listening in action. And I think the examples are, are best to hear. Um, the, you mentioned like you got a bit of a head start through Physio Twitter. So you named up the two legends who have been on our podcast as well, Meekins and Lehman, who's been around as well in Australia for some courses. Um, and I'm curious what, who the Meekins and the Lehmans of today might be in, in the social media sphere. But um the question that I got asked and shout out to, to Johnny um, for this one, how did the meme game for Lucerville get so strong, mate? Oh, mate, look, I, I think I may have some kind of disorder where I filter reality through the use of memes. Um, that's, that's what I've come to realize over the last maybe six months. Um, no, look, I am. Um, a few, a few years back, I discovered a, uh, a free Photoshop app on my phone. And I just kind of started like just in a couple of group chats I was involved in with mates. I play fantasy football with just making stupid photoshops of, of the boys and just, you know, absolutely taking the piss out of them and things like that. And it, it seemed to always land pretty well. They always engaged well with it and had a good laugh. And and I mean, I think too, like I'm, I'm quite, I, I sort of enjoy my pop culture. Like I, I love the Simpsons. I like Seinfeld. I, I, I sort of am a big fan of those sorts of things. And I think, um, over time, I followed and consumed more and more physio meme stuff on on Instagram, and sort of seen the impact and the reach of of those things. And and I guess recently, like late last year, I kind of reflected. I was like, well, why don't I actually try and bring that skill set and and my uh, I guess my Photoshop game and some of the the things that I use to my um my page to just maybe assist with uh, messaging and and uh, I guess helping my brand, but also helping get some concepts across to people who need it. Um, because I think we can't, as as much as it's like quite silly and a lot of people are really dismissive and trivial of it, like there is something to the idea that like the way in which a meme can like perfectly distill humor with like a really good point and, and that really engages people. Like I think we should pay attention to that. As much as we love to talk about like, oh, you know, nuance and context and all these things and, you know, complex ideas, it's like if we can put some of these things really simple and, and use humor to illustrate the point, um, I just think it lands way better. So I've, I've just been making more of a conscious effort to try and be creative on that front. And thankfully I've had like some just random sources of inspiration lately, just through things happening in my life as well. Yeah. So um, loving the the storylines as well with, with the captions, I think you touched on a great point that um, the creative banter is engaging and it can start a conversation I think, especially in today's age with the fast scrolling pace of social media, it's, it's kind of like a, a engaging, playful artwork where you know that a piece of art isn't going to tell you all the nuances of life, but you can still comment on it and you can still 
have some conversation it might spark some curiosity to reflect on oh the actual meanings and it's interesting how then other people can take different things from the same piece of art or the same meme absolutely absolutely and i think i think we know that some people learn really well through analogy um or like humor may just really stick really well for them right and as you say if it's if it's a way to get a foot in the door with somebody and have them reflect on a concept that we really think is important and want to get across to, to people i think it's i think it's great i think it's valuable it's like um one of the ways to maybe uh soften the confrontational nature that might be uh, so easily communicated when questioning things especially when there is no tone through text form of communication or text message and so with that note some fallacies that um you've seen and you've encountered in in your practice maybe even starting on uh, some of your own i know i've definitely committed the kind of post hoc fallacy with strength training resistance training and then just motivated reasoning to insert any reason for the benefits of resistance training for any client um and then when they didn't get the outcomes that they wanted it was kind of their fault that they just didn't lift heavy enough or didn't commit to my program that i made um so yeah if we expand on some fallacies that you've seen what are some of the common ones in your work yeah so i mean something i've reflected on recently it's sort of the first thing that comes to mind right um so I just think it's it's interesting how like the majority of physios will tout the benefits of physical activity, right? Like I don't I don't think there are too many people who or too many physios who will discourage people from exercising, right? But then in the same breath, they'll erect a huge barrier immediately after with just silly caveats, right? And, and I mean the classic example is like you, you know we we gatekeep exercises under the pretense of keeping people safe. Um, so there was that whole um, absolute dumpster fire of a series of articles in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, which I think it was, I don't know if it was early last year or late the year before, which was about the uh, the risks of weightlifting. And they had a, a title sports physio engage to uh, to write this stuff. And it was, it was just such an uninformed opinion and perspective um, and, and like any, any weightlifting coach worth their souls or anyone who's actually worked with people in a gym definitely had a massive eye roll at this it was all about like you know optimal technique to keep people safe it was it was all about like the risk reward ratio of deadlifting and how you know he spends more time discouraging people from deadlifting than encouraging it and those sorts of sorts of lines of discourse um and then the reason this came to mind is because last week again the sydney morning herald published yet another article about the rise and risks of fitness pilates and they quoted two prominent physios in the women's health space to talk about, like, again, oh, you know, they're concerned by the rise of these fitness Pilates studios. They're, these instructors are, are underqualified. They're not delivering Pilates in a safe and effective way. If you don't work through full range of motion, you get tightness and soreness in the lower back and hips. And, you know, the worst case scenario is having an overactive pelvic floor that leads to painful intercourse and difficulty peeing and all these things. And it was just... It's absolutely mental to me that like these examples that are, are so rare, right? That are so rare are used to like fearmonger something like Pilates. I mean, Pilates has always been viewed as the the silver bullet for back pain. That's really, really bloody safe. And here you have a couple of physios like 
gatekeeping and creating this enormous barrier and, you know, making people reflect on something that's incredibly unlikely, incredibly unlikely. And, and I think it's, it's, it's almost like we're saying, you know, exercise is great, but only if you do it perfectly, according to my arbitrary standards that take tons of time, energy and practice to meet. Um, so you may never have any fun or achieve a meaningful stimulus, uh, to achieve your goals and doing so, right? So, and then when you th- consider that most of these movement standards or rules have never been appropriately validated as, as protective against injury and just how much these, these stories are really just a form of selection bias, right? Like I, I don't doubt that these women's health physios in this article have probably seen some ladies who have these upregulated pelvic floors from, from fitness parties, but it's like how many people are out there doing it that have, that don't have these problems that they're not seeing. It's like, is it really worth educating the public on the risks, right? I, I would say no. I think the risk-reward ratio is still very much skewed in the favour of just doing the thing, right? So, um, yeah, sorry, that's my rant on on that. I'm not sure. Did you read the article? Yeah, no. Um, so thank you for exposing me to more trauma. Um, uh <laughs> Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, ironically, the the previous article from uh, last year on the big three, the squat, bench, deadlift, I think that's one you're referring to um, in yep. the Sydney Morning Herald uh, that sparked the misinformation series. So I think uh, there might be some helpful ways to respond to the articles. And my mind always goes to, is it worth even bringing attention to the articles in the first place? Um, and then having some ways to inoculate the the public so they can really question the sources of information. But yeah, just another great example of um, the the harms that can come from the messages that we put out and unintentionally. And and then also, I really loved your point on reflecting on our own selection bias. Uh, we usually see people in a certain state or in a certain uh, uh, yeah part of their journey and they might come and present with very similar patterns and are brain is designed to pick up these patterns and then we have our own frameworks and rules but we don't see the blind spots and that's why it's helpful to almost um coming back to the community whether that's online in person or both and bounce ideas back and forth to to uh to crash test some of our assumptions and and beliefs in this because i've probably committed some very similar like selection bias uh errors with you know everyone coming in with back pain just needs to breathe and needs to relax and needs to stop tightening their core. And sometimes that might actually be unhelpful for a particular individual at a particular time. hundred percent, mate. And I think again, I, you and I are not immune to this, right? Like we are human beings. We do engage in motivated reasoning uh, without even realizing that we're doing it. And I'm, I'm sure there are times where I do the same thing with selection bias. Okay. But I guess like, as you mentioned, inoculating the public, like I think, if, if I was talking to people about this, if, if, you're, if your clinician is telling you that activity is unsafe, I would recommend not doing it. I, I would ask them, can you, can you show me a source that shows the specific rate of in, this injury in these people doing this activity? And if all they can tell you is, oh, in my experience, I treat a lot of people who are injured, like just you can disregard it, okay? You can disregard it because that is, that is selection bias. That is using your experience with a few people who've had this negative outcome to then make a widespread judgment about how safe the thing is. And and we've got to remember too, that like as much as physios can be busy, they're really not seeing that many people with this problem. It's like a tiny percentage. Um, And, you know, I I went and just (laughs) 
vented about this with a, a colleague of mine who's got a special interest in women's health and she had the same eye roll reaction, right? And she most of her caseload are women's health patients. So I, I think that that would be a useful heuristic for, for people in the public. Like maybe ask for, can you show me a specific source as to how high the rate of this problem is? And, and if they can't and all they've got is their experience, you can, you can disregard it and maybe find someone who better understands the activity. Yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing the um, levels of reliability for information. It's And then kind of um, there's a different approach and I'm interested in hearing your experience when it comes to discussing some of the, the claims and the beliefs with a clinician versus a, a lay person. Um, so like we're looking at the reliability of sources. Um, sometimes I personally would trust some of my clients who've been seeing me for a while over some local clinicians down the road for pain and injury, obviously for other things and for other contexts and circumstances. Mm -hmm. But some of the, the, I think maybe the way that we're taught that um, expertise comes in the title, it comes in the qualifications and we forget that there is a lifelong process and they might they might still be paused in terms of their, their literature and they might have relied on uh, their own educators in the past and they never questioned the reliability of their sources. I think that's also a, a theme that comes up that might be helpful for clinicians as well to look at, looking at senior clinicians. I know I definitely relied on a lot of senior clinicians in my earlier years and reflecting back now, I think I over-relied on them or I just didn't question I took the kind of claim that face value and that's something that comes up even now with some of the sources that I trust. Yeah. I mean, where my mind goes with that, Dan, like it's a great, it's a great topic of conversation really, because yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I, I think that it can go two ways, right? Like I, I, I guess for, for one thing, yeah, we should be, we should always be questioning sources. We should always be asking about like, well, what is, what is the source of this information? Where are you getting that that from? Um, what's the basis for this claim? I think those are really good things to ask. Um, but I, I suppose on the other side of the coin too, like, and you mentioned this idea of like over-reliance on, on seniors, um, that's definitely a thing. But then I'd, I'd argue that perhaps a mistake that I made was assuming that just because somebody does have faulty reasoning or a, a, an outdated belief on one thing that I can't learn or shouldn't take anything from them at all. Like, I think we have to take every claim on, on face value and, and I, I think that we can still learn things from people that we disagree with on a couple of topics. Um, and it, it's, I think that we don't, we, we want to sort of be in that healthy middle ground of, of questioning cl each claim on their merit and not just writing somebody off because they do have an, un, an unhelpful belief. Because I, I suppose too, like I view this topic as a challenge to implementing evidence-based practice in private practice. So I, I think that the way in which we often go about these conversations about evidence and about claims, and it's, like, it's just far too adversarial. Um, I know you've read, and I'm in the process of reading How Minds Change by David McCraney. And, and that, that I, I would recommend that to like any physio, EP, like if you're a health professional, you deal with people, you should read this book. Like it is absolutely fantastic in terms of understanding this, like the science and the basis for changing someone's mind on a, on a topic and, you know, the, the fastest way to have an unproductive conversation is to come at it like you were wrong and I'm about to show you how wrong you are. It Truth just doesn't matter when you do that. 
you could have the best sources of information that are just beyond reproach. But if you come at it as like, you're a boomer, you're wrong, you're outdated, you, you, you just lose them. You just lose, you've got no chance of having a productive conversation, right? So I, I think that 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 approach that some people take to these discussions with their seniors, they may think they're doing the right thing in, in championing championing evidence-based practice and, and good quality sources, but really they're having the, they're they're promoting the backfire effect. You're actually making the problem worse. So I think simply asking the question, well, what's the what's the source for that information? I'd be curious to learn more, I think has a lot of value, right? Because what you're opening up is a chance for them to reflect on their sources of information. And, and perhaps because you're approaching it with genuine um, interest, you can kind of then dive into a conversation about, well, have you thought about like, again, why this may not be reliable or what are your thoughts on this alternative source? And I think that's a far better way to have these conversations, invite people to reflect on their own thinking um, rather than just coming at it like you were wrong. Yeah, there can be that. Uh, we talked about the frustration when hearing examples of what other clinicians say and that can um, kind of get us hooked and fused to a passion and fury for kind of fighting and, and battling it out and kind of proving people wrong and definitely caught myself in, in that wave and uh, recognize that I think it, it's, it's about the claims is a helpful starting point. It's easy to attach uh, claims to a brand or a profession or a person, an individual um, and that gets beside the point and, and just the conversations are never helpful for anyone involved whether that's the person you're talking to yourself or if this is a a, a comment on a social media post it, the people i'm looking are also not benefiting at all um if anything it's no. increasing engagement to the actual post and if you're looking to uh, uh question the the validity or reliability of the claims of that post you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot in a way Absolutely. No, I think, I think you're right. And, and again, you, you're sure there may be some people on the sidelines who are sort of on the fence and maybe reading these conversations helps them make up their mind. But I, I just wonder whether or not we overestimate how many people are doing that um, and underestimate how much we're actually promoting the spread of this information that's perhaps dated by just engaging with the post online. Like just by just by commenting and, and going back and forth and arguing your Instagram or whatever medium it is will reward the poster by driving more engagement because they're like, oh, this got a lot of comments. Let's uh let's bump that up our ranks. Um, so you're you're paradoxically just you're fighting a forest fire by squirting gasoline out of a water bottle. Like you didn't put the fire out, and if anything, you just spread it a little bit. It's a great analogy. Love that. I might steal that. That's a, that's definitely a meme idea. If you think of one absolutely <laughs> um, <laughs> we will talk yeah absolutely the um yes yeah, so i think as a helpful starting point i think um starting with that rapport building with the book you mentioned how minds change goes into and street epistemology uh goes into which is building rapport and 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 building that relationship um a common like practical advice i might offer is just saying hi to people as opposed to just commenting and asking a question when you might not know them, they might not know you. So there's already that, even if it's a genuine question and phrased perfectly, 
it's missing that first step of just genuinely connecting with someone and, and um, you know, acknowledging <laughs> their presence or the efforts that they've put to, you know, um, make the content in the first place. And they've back to what you mentioned, there's 99.99% of the time positive intent and they're trying to help people and they are helping people for many reasons that you might not know. So I think that's a um, helpful, practical advice when, when looking at some of the, the fury that we might experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, as I said earlier, I think adopting that, that perspective and that mentality around things, trying to be less adversarial, it's, it's definitely been good for my mental health. I can tell you that much. Um, And so I would definitely encourage people to, to consider trialing that approach for a while and just see how you feel about things then. And you touched on the, some of the challenges and I'd love to expand on the challenges of applying an evidence-based approach. Ironically, um, defining an evidence-based approach would be my first kind of port of call with, um, and I refer to Eric Myra's funnel often as a really uh, straightforward, useful uh, analogy to picture an evidence-based approach because so often it is misconstrued into a evidence-centered textbook-based approach. So yeah, I'd like, love to hear your your ways of explaining it, first of all, and then um, what are some of the, the real challenges that you've experienced yourself and also you might have heard from from colleagues? Yeah, um, so I mean, in terms of how I explain it, yes, I, I use the funnel analogy as well. I think it's it's absolutely perfect. Um, it, it, that's my opinion. I'm sure there's, there's alternative ways of, of looking at it and going about it. Um, I, I mean, it, it's it, it's probably important as well that in that process, like that we do consider like, okay, well, does this evidence for this condition actually apply to the person who is sitting in front of me, right? It, 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 are they the demographic that was assessed within the study design? Um, do they perhaps have some moderators there that might make them more or less responsive to to this like again we know about social determinants of health for example as a mediator of outcome we know about work cover status as a or sorry a moderator of outcome i should say we know about work cover status as a moderator of outcome um i shared a, a paper with um the, the sexy trial the secondary analysis of that um resistant more resistance training for people with rotator cuff related pain um jared powell and i made a meme about that on Friday just gone talking about how within that study design we saw that people who had more pain catastrophizing were less responsive to getting more resistance exercise, right? So, I mean, sure, you may have a, a, a trial that shows that doing resistance exercise helps these people with shoulder pain, but failing to consider what other variables may be in the mix there might mean that you're, you're not actually addressing the problem or maybe you're making things worse as well. So I, I think that that's really important. Um, and, and I think the final analogy, I, I would encourage anyone to go on and just Google Eric Mayer. How do you, how do you pronounce his surname, by the way? It's not, it's not Mayer, it's Mayer, is that? I, I, I don't know. And I've had my own surname mispronounced. So with respect to yeah. Eric, I'm going to um, bow out of that. Answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's Armadillo, isn't it? Exactly. Isn't that's, that, yes. That's your, that's your surname? Thanks. Okay, good. <laughs> I hope that sticks now. <laughs> um, but no, I think um, I would encourage anyone to go and read that because he puts it, he puts it perfectly. Um, it, I guess in terms of like the, the barriers within the context of private practice, it's, it's a lot of it does come down to, I think a lot of clinicians are quite time poor. Um, and then when you couple that with 
the external pressures of being a human being in this day and age, having family, friends, social engagements, all these things, it's like it's hard to expect somebody who's in a clinic who's seeing 60 plus patients a week to then be absolutely grinding papers in their own time, right? Like, and, and I think too, the, the very like um, private practice sort of, um, it, it very much incentivizes a model that maybe is more financially driven as opposed to being about doing the best by, by your patients as well. Um, so I think that there are some really big systemic barriers there that probably need to change. And, and I think until we probably have better funding models for physio from a public health perspective where private practice can sort of get in on that a little bit more, then it, it's going to be a really tricky thing to, to overcome. Um, and, and, you know, I do think that some of the, some like people who may seem like relatively outdated practice owners I, I i don't think that they're that way by choice i just think it's the it's the reality of trying to run a business and keep the lights on at the end of the day like they are just under the pump and and profit margins can't be that high in a in a situation where you're just trading money for time and you know physio and ep realistically i know that i know of some clinics that charge a hell of a lot but there's only so much you can charge and expect that you'll get like widespread uptake of your services so so I think that those those things are worth considering when it comes to that. Um, what are, What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. That's um, one of the common themes. And then expanding on the lack of time can lead to research does doesn't not apply to my clientele, or um, I, it's just too much jargon with research. I don't actually know how to interpret it, or I'm just I don't have time. I've got family. I've got a mortgage. And I think that that's a helpful starting point to expand on some of the contextual um, pressures that people have. I think it's easy uh, to assume that people don't uh, have the willingness to to look up research when there might be other barriers getting in the way in the first place. We talked about social determinants of healthcare for clients. There's also some determinants socially. Um, uh, financially is a big one where it's just very difficult and challenging to not only read the research, but then interpret it and then take that um, interpretation within the larger body of evidence that we know for one of hundreds of given topics that we might come across. So I think um, acknowledging that I think is, is important. That it's, it's not easy to, uh, to stay up to date. It's a continual process and journey to keep evidence-based. Yeah, yeah, you're you're not wrong. It's it's incredibly difficult, um, and it's certainly not a simple answer as to how we can overcome those barriers. But I, I suppose that part of it is obviously we've we've got these resources now. I mean, the knowledge exchange is a great example of that. We've got um, resources such as like Physio Network is another example where they they sort of do these research reviews where they kind of distill it all down for you. Um, and and I mean, it's just about maybe acknowledging that well, here's here's a couple of sources that I trust that have solid epistemology um, that can kind of distill this stuff into easily digestible formats where it's, it's time efficient. Um, there are podcasts like that. Um, again, certainly back to social media, you know, being on physio Twitter, um, as much as like some of those arguments are just ridiculous and completely unproductive, there are other times where you can learn a hell of a lot through, I know, papers that someone like Peter O'Sullivan shares or you know, Meekins or, or Greg Lehman share and, and just, just consuming that, I think, can overcome that time barrier to to an extent. Um, I, I suppose, too, it's it's probably about 
reframing the idea of investing in professional development for practice owners because I know it's tricky when it's like, well, all right, here's something that doesn't directly generate revenue that doesn't help me keep the lights on and meet my obligations. Um, so I don't really want to prioritise it or put money towards it. But it's probably reframing it as, well, hang on, upskilling your staff and, and helping them help people in the best possible way. Like it's it's only going to benefit you in the in the long run. Like it's, it's going to lead to hopefully more referrals and more word of mouth because they're doing good work. You know, I think um, being willing to invest that that money, that capital, and also that clinician time into upskilling, I think it, it, it does take a little bit of a mentality change for those guys. And I think that's where a lot of the um, potential uh, resources for investing in courses can come from. There's uh, internal PD. There's um, a lot of clinics that are um, doing really well with making that time and blocking out that time. I think maybe there's opportunity there to, as you mentioned, reframe the the benefits of staying up to date and how that might uh, increase word of mouth referrals, how that might in the in the long run definitely improve uh, business outcomes as well as clinical outcomes. Yeah, massive, massively, massively. And, and at the end of the day, you know, paying for staff training, it's, it is it is a tax deduction, right? Like as much as, yes, it is it is dead time. Um, it's They're not generating any income while they're doing it, but at the same time, you that comes off your bottom line. They're bringing back a skill set in an area of interest for them that they're passionate about. Um, it's, it's only going to lead to good things down the line. Um, it's going to help them support a list. It's going to help them cultivate relationships because they're doing better work. Um, it's something as now as a solo practitioner who works as a sole trader, like I've I've recently been on a couple of courses and had to in, invest out of my own pocket. I don't have a PD budget anymore, but I just see the value in doing that and and being able to like upskill and continue to feed that that word of mouth referral network that way. Yeah, and, and if you don't mind uh, expanding on that for. Uh a sole trader such as yourself who um, has, as you mentioned, invested in, in courses, what, what were some of the, the benefits? And you can also give a, feel free to give a shout out to those two courses uh, as a clinician. Um, Cause some of the barriers that come up is, is uh, I don't have time for courses uh, or uh, they're too expensive um, or, or perhaps um, they don't see the link that it can actually make their practice not only more effective, but also more efficient for patient outcomes because there is that knowledge and skill uh, gain from some of those courses. Yeah, Matt, massively. Well, I mean, so it was about, it was in February I did uh, Steve Collins's um, strength and conditioning course for physios. So he's rehab coach level one. Uh, and the following weekend I did Greg Layman's uh, reconciling biomechanics with, with pain science. And, you know, aside from what we've already talked about in terms of like tremendous content um, in both courses, um, it was, it was really cool, again, as a sole trader to be able to get out of my little bubble where I'm, you know, weird and isolated and actually have discussions with colleagues who share similar interests and network and, and understand, well, okay, this person's in that area. So if I had to have a client who's moving away or needs help over there, I, I have someone I can trust. Um, and I, I would like to think that just through that interaction now, they sort of have a similar perspective about me. So I, I think that through networking on these courses as well, there's there's that that value add. I think eventually you'll actually start to go, oh, okay, well, I actually got a couple of referrals out of that. I got a couple of recommendations from from people I met on these courses. So it's it's not just an investment in your skills and your ability to help people. It's potentially actually generating referrals as well. Yeah, an often overlooked component of 
investing in continuing education, like the, the long-term networking uh, opportunities and the future word of mouth referrals. Um, if, so with the, the options of upskilling out there now, um, and I, I can't imagine what it's like for new grads entering the world of TikTok, which I'm pretty sure did not exist when I graduated, uh, which shows a bit of my age and a bit of your age as well, Lou. Um, what, what might be some advice that you'd offer for new grads listening who are, or even clinicians who are entering private practice? Yeah, so, I mean, I think for for grads, when it comes to finding a job within private practice, I, I think a key thing, don't, don't get too sucked in by the offer of mentoring. Um, I, I think if, if they're telling you, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll mentor you, it'll be, it'll be great. Um, I, I would ask a few follow-up questions. I'd, I'd want to know, well, how is that going to look? What are you, what are you committing to in terms of mentoring, right? Is, is it going to be like a set time each week where you're going to take me through, is it just a set topic? Um, and what would the topics be? And, or is it more like, Hey, here's an opportunity to sit down with a senior and discuss difficult cases and get feedback on, on your reasoning and all those sorts of things, but definitely like try and nail down the specifics of set offer, right? Because I know I've, I've interacted with a couple of grads recently who had been promised this, this PD on a regular ongoing basis as part of their, their offer. And they didn't clarify this and they, they were four weeks in and had literally had nothing. So it's, it's like, oh, I'm sure they'll get to it eventually, right? But at the end of the day, they were feeling quite disgruntled and, you know, a little bit uh, upset about this. And it's like, well, hang on, they've literally invested no time in, uh, in actually helping us out. And, and I guess a, a good way to perhaps, let's say they are committing X amount of time a week to, to doing this to, to know whether or not they're good for it is to ask, well, has, have you done this for grads in the past? Or perhaps even ask, what, what is your caseload like for the seniors? Because part of um, the pressures of private practice and trying to keep the lights on such as that some some senior physios are just completely immersed in the business, fully booked all the time, right? Like where is that time going to come from if they're expected to maintain a full list all the time and constantly be busy? So I'd, I'd suggest that if they're saying they'll, they'll mentor you weekly, but yet they're constantly booked out, I think I'd want to be reassured that, hey, we're going to block off this time specifically for that. So that, that's probably my one of my top tips for, for grads in terms of uh, entering that world. Even um, I, again, you've opened up some previous traumas, but um, I remember my own experiences uh, where I was also promised in a contract role at a, at a commercial gym that I would be given weekly uh, mentoring for some guidance and it ended up just being how to, how to sell a process and a package to clients, um, which to be honest, the, the, the employer at the time was very good at but it just wasn't the skill set that I was expecting. So I think um, that's great advice. Maybe if there's ways to shadow some of the in-services that they attend um, or if there's uh, resources, previous uh, uh, content that they've made for the mentoring. So at least you know what the mentoring will involve. Um, and if it is uh, more in line with um, some of the business aspects and that's what you value, then at least you know in advance that that's definitely the right place for you. But um, I think that there is that lack of a further question of what might that mentoring involve? How, how might that look? What does it involve? Hey, absolutely. And, and, and again, I, I sort of think that 
some of the business stuff when it comes to um, private practice particularly it, it is important for you to get your head around right to to an extent but if if all of your pd all the time is just business and bottom line focus then it's like well hang on how, how much am i really likely to grow as a clinician in this place and and might there be some pressures that make it very difficult for me to grow as a clinician because the focus is more on patient numbers and retention of clients than it is on how well i i develop and and i guess again circling back to my story and the way that i've been able to build my um my business and my caseload over time like it, it's just taken a long time of being in the, the same place to be really busy and, and i think that that's probably something that that practice owners need to get their head around is like well should they really expect that a grad is able to come out of uni and be fully booked all the time within a year is that is that even realistic i i would argue no um i think that they've got to be patient and they've got to be willing to invest in building you into the type of clinician for which there is high demand right because and and again i think unfortunately it's something else that grads probably need to get their head around to a degree is that there is probably a little bit of distrust from the public because you have a little experience and because you're perhaps a little bit younger looking I can't count the number of times working in clinics I've been at previously where patients have called up and said, who's your most experienced clinician? Who's your, who's, who's got the most experience, who has the most experience with this. And, and, and I think that that's unfortunately a little bit of a barrier at first, but it's just something you've got to accept and, and just work hard at overcoming through being very good and being very knowledgeable. And I guess conveying that in a way that's not super jargon heavy, but that gives people confidence in your abilities. Absolutely. The um, experience card comes up and, you know, you're speaking to a baby face 30 year old here, but um, the, I think that's a sign that they just want some reassurance that they're with the right person. And if there's a way to uh, use that as a, almost as a, a marketing strategy of knowing what to say to the common requests um, that, you know, the experience can definitely come and, and maybe as well, like looking at the other perspective with new grads um, that they should also probably expect that they won't be seeing patients back to back in the first you know, few weeks and, and months. And it might take a bit of time. They might need a, a little bit of um, uh, work on their part, whether that's social media or reaching out to communities and, and knowing that they need to also build up that, that caseload. So it's, I think um, it's, it's important to look at the expectations of, of both parties of the employers and also the employees that they're not just going to get a full caseload in, in a month. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also is that, is that really emphasized within that context as being like, you know, your determinant of income and your worth to the business right at the end of the day? Because again, I've, I've certainly at times found myself feeling a little bit like, oh, gee, maybe, maybe I'm not as good as I would like to be because I've been a bit quieter at times over the years and I've, I've maybe assigned too much importance and worth to how busy I am and how in demand my services are. When, I mean, if the last couple of years have taught us anything, it's that, you know, our demand for, for physio, demand for EP, things like that is, is dictated by forces completely out of our control at times. And, and while we should, we should do all we can to, to mitigate the impacts of those things, like, again, it just takes one COVID outbreak to completely squash business for a few months. Like, I think we've got to maybe let go of a little bit of control and not be so harsh on ourselves if we do have a down week here or there. And and eventually, if you've been doing a good enough job, if you've been investing in upskilling yourself, I would I would like, and forging those connections throughout your, your local community, I'd, I'd like to think that 
at a certain point, the demand's going to be high enough that again, you get a cancellation, you probably pick up a new patient within a day or two, right? Like it's just, it's just one of those things. Yeah. I think there's a, a very important like nuanced conversation on uh, the worth that a clinician has and how that might look different according to different contexts. Um, Cause I, I still, can, I so can resonate with the, the feeling of failure when someone fail, when someone cancels rather and the placing that burden of responsibility on me for not rebooking them enough. And that's also a theme that comes up. Um, I'm curious, what, what do you feel we would need to, uh, what would be helpful in those situations for, for new grads um, who might have that attachment to the, 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 the calendar per se? And what might be some helpful uh, resources looking at business, looking at um, uh, where you've got maybe some of your advice from? Yeah, well, I think a good place to start. I, I really enjoyed your podcast with um, Luke and, and was it Jason or yep. was it Brendan? There was Jason, Jason yeah. and Gardner. Yep. 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 Your, your chat about like, you know, ethical, ethical businesses and private practice, I think is a, is a great resource and a great starting point for people to consider um, may, maybe some ways to try and, like seek out more business and more work in in ways that align well with with their values. Um, so I think that's probably a really good starting point and a really good really good listen. Um, I, I guess too, as I said though, it is simply about like you you obviously want to try and cultivate more work and you want to try and seek it out, but don't don't get too caught up in saying, well, I'm a failure as a clinician because I'm not above eighty percent utilization in my calendar. Like maybe chat with a senior clinician who you trust, um, who maybe works in a similar context to yours as to like some tips and tricks as to how they got a bit busier or how they've overcome similar issues. But I, I think the bottom line is that no matter how good you are, you won't be immune to forces beyond your control. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm certainly every now and then feel a bit of calendar churn. It just comes up every few weeks where I might struggle with that side of things, but it's an ongoing process. Yep, I think um, reflecting on the uh, the assumptions of what success might mean to clinicians and knowing that it can be quite flexible and variable according to what uh, the individual clinician would want to do and, and how they want to practice. And sometimes uh, you need that extra time for upskilling. You need that extra time where you might not be seeing patients, but you might be doing some other skills or, or uh, doing some of those tasks that in the long run will be very valuable for not only uh, the your growth, but also for the business growth. Yeah, getting getting some reps in, doing some some tasks that are like I guess business development oriented, perhaps like you know producing content that speaks to the type of people that you're trying to help, perhaps, and you know using that downtime as an opportunity to get good at that and get efficient at that. So when you are busier, you can keep churning it out. Hey, great uh, chat in general. I was going to say good chat because that's like a but that's more sarcastic when it's just a good chat. <laughs> it was a great chat. Um, first of all, is there anything that I've missed that you wanted to, to leave listeners with? And I'd also love to hear where people can reach out. Mate, I think it's been pretty, uh, pretty comprehensive. I've really enjoyed the chat. Um, if, if, if people want to find me, like I'm, I guess I'm most active on, on Instagram through my, my business handle, which is at Lou Savile underscore physio. Um, so that's, that's sort of where it's, it's easiest to probably reach me. Cool. So Lou Savile. Um, and any uh, Simpsons memes, ideas, uh, feeding through DM is that preference for you? Yep, absolutely. Look, I'm more than happy to uh, to collaborate with anyone with some uh, some ideas for a Simpsons meme. I can tell you that now. The, the modern art form it's it's amazing. 
mate. Absolutely. Thank you it's so a much. Thing. Appreciate the uh, the first of all the the humility that you have and the uh, insights into some of your own experiences. Appreciate the all the content and the work that you do, not only uh, online but I'm sure in person very much so. And mate, until next time, appreciate the chat. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks again for having me on.